I'm Yamilka Rodriguez, and this is the Brand Therapist Podcast, where we come together and dive deep into the psychology of branding. We live in a new era that asks us to step up and show our individuality, learn what makes us unique and different in this world. Let's open the door to possibilities so you can win in business, life, and relationships, because everything starts with you. Hello, and welcome to my couch, Greg and Daryl, CEO of Logitech. I'm so excited to have you. Well, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a virtual couch. Yes, my virtual couch. That's true. So I'm going to go ahead and read your bio because there's some really interesting things here that I want the listeners to know. And then we'll get into the questions right after that. So under Breck and Daryl's 10 years of leadership as president and CEO, Logitech has reinvented itself into an award-winning design company, an industry force in pursuing a more sustainable and equitable world and a top performer on the sixth Swiss stock exchange in NASDAQ. Bracken is a proponent of design in a literal liberal arts in business, especially in innovation product experience for consumers. As a result, Logitech has been the recipient of numerous awards, including more than 200 design awards. Wow. Over the past three years, from the likes of IF Design, Red Dot, and Fast Company, and numerous sustainability awards. Brecken himself has been named Swiss CEO of the year by Overmatt three times in the past four years and received 2022 Edison Achievement Award, which is all around human-centered design, which I love. Brecken brings to Logitech nearly 30 years of experience in product, people, and brand management through design. He has worked around the world on iconic brands like Old Spice, Gillette, and Braun, my favorite. He has spent time at P&G, Arthur Anderson, PepsiCo, GE, and Whirlpool. Brecken is on the board of the Harvard Business School, and he holds an MBA from Harvard Business School and a BA in English from Hendricks College in Arkansas. And I said that right, Arkansas. You did. <laughs> All right, great. Well, Brecken, I'm so excited, excited, excited to have you. But first, I want to kind of start with asking, Logic Tech has gone through a lot in the last few years, and I was looking at numbers, of course, and I saw that in 2013, it was like an $11 million company, and in 2022, now it's like a $5 million company, is that right? We went from about $1.9 billion to about over $5 billion now, and the market value has gone from about a billion to about, I think we're today we're at $8 billion. so it's been a good story been really fun too. Tell us how that happened. I was brought in as often happens with the CEOs when the company was really in trouble. You know, it was in a, it, they needed a turnaround and I had worked on Braun doing turnaround and I'd worked on Old Spice, two of my favorites. Anyway, they were looking for a turnaround and I was looking for somewhere where I could, I'd fallen in love with design, you know, 10 years earlier. And I really was looking for a company where I could uh, create what I thought of as a design company, you know, a company that really ran itself completely by design. And so when I got the call for this job, I thought, well, that sounds like an interesting space tech. I don't know anything about it really, but it seems like it has something in common with Braun, uh, to your point. And it did. And so I took the job and then I, we did the classic things you do in a turnaround, which is you usually shrink in the beginning a little bit to get your cost under control. And then you invest in new growth areas. And that's exactly what we did. And 
And then we've systematically done that for 10 years. So it's been, uh, we've gone from about, I think about 15 categories in the beginning, or 37 now, and we're just still going strong. I mean, we've got so many opportunities ahead of us. This is probably the most exciting time to be there ever right now. So tell me what happened in 2020, because I know that was a huge year for you guys. Yeah, we were already, we were growing out of near double digits from about 2014 or 15. And so we were already kind of on a roll. We positioned ourselves in these four big secular trends behind you. All of our businesses fell into four secular trends, the rise of video conferencing, kind of replacing audio and the the growth of people working from many places, not just in an office. The rise of e-sports or gaming as a as really the biggest collection of sports in the world one day. And then finally, the creator movement, you know, where people are creating, especially digital creators, creating content for other people. And we were already positioned behind those four, and we were growing very nicely because of it. And then, of course, when the pandemic came in the beginning, it looked like uh, the, the roof was going to fall in. It was going to be a disaster because all of our distribution disappeared overnight. But pretty quickly, you know, we made some bets on inventory, but pretty quickly, you know, of course, everybody... It just accelerated everything we were working on. So we grew, instead of 10 or 11%, we grew uh, 74% that year. And, and it's been really amazing. That's huge growth, right? In in a little amount of time. A lot of companies can't do that kind of growth or grow that fast that quickly. So you guys were very, whatever strategies you guys took really were amazing because you guys made it through that growth that usually a lot of companies can't grow that fast that quickly yeah was there a specific thing that you guys did the demand usually you don't have that kind of demand and you can't create it so the demand formed because the pandemic you know obviously took people home so all of a sudden everybody had more workspaces and a new workspace most people and then video conferencing became normal immediately you know a lot of companies were they had video conferencing set up in a couple of conference rooms, but they weren't really video conferencing every day. So that happened overnight. And uh, gaming just kept growing and creators started creating even more. So the demand was there, the, the challenge was supply, you know, and, and a lot of companies just choked on the supply. We were really lucky, or maybe we were, we were experienced. And we had, in the very beginning of the pandemic, you know, when our business was down 30 or 40%, I and my head of operations, and then my later my CFO kind of put our heads together and said, you know, I, I think this is going to go the other way, and we're not going to be able to get enough. So we made a really big supply bet on uh, components, and, it, and then we kept doubling down on that bet. So that really worked out well, too. Those are all in the past now. So it's it's exciting to have experienced that. But I think the what I'm really excited about is what was the, the scale that's given us the opportunity to do so much more now. Yeah, I'm sure you guys are coming up with fascinating new innovations and new things maybe at the end you can give us a little bit of insight of what the future of Logitech is going to be but this wouldn't be a brand therapy session if we didn't talk about your childhood so our childhood story so tell me a childhood story that kind of got you into the moment you are today well I grew up in uh in this great state of Kentucky where you're sitting right now and I'm pretty far from it but i never too far mentally. My dad walked out when I was nine years old. You know, he's, he's passed away. So I, so I could be a little more uh, blunt than I probably would be normally. But yeah, he walked out on Christmas Eve when I was nine. And, I'm, and I think I was fine. I wasn't that close to him. But my my mom really fell apart. She really leaned back on my me and my siblings and, and uh, kind of treated me like the, at least I think me and probably all of my siblings as, as a therapist in a way. And she'd come back and 
uh, second guess herself. And, you know, she was a first grade teacher. She said, oh, I wonder if I shouldn't have said this, shouldn't have done that. She also talked about her marriage. What did I do wrong? You know? And I finally got to the point where I, with her, where I would say, I, I said to her at least in the beginning, and then I started repeating it over and over again. And then I started living it the rest of my life so far. And I, I would say, you know, I imagine you've got a stick in your hand and you drag it behind your heels. Everything behind you is just a, a history. You know, it's just to learn from. It's not anything else. And your whole life's in front of you. And I, I digested that so much that um, I began to think, I've systematically gone deeper and deeper into that concept and to the point where now I sort of have this belief that, you know, you really should just leave every, every day, you should just start over again, you know, with whatever you're doing in your life and, you know, re-earn it if you've got, if you're trying to do something for other people and not re-experience it if you think you've experienced it for the first time or, or, or try completely new things if you feel that way. So it's kind of the way I've tried to live my life and nobody's perfect in doing that, something like that. But it's certainly my philosophy. It's a little bit probably Buddhist or something. I don't know, but but it's certainly mine. It's, it's my own way of thinking about life. I love that. So talking about that, what would you say is your personal brand? I don't know. You know, I guess it's a really hard one for me to answer. I, you get asked something like that on a regular basis and I can never come up with a really crisp answer, which is probably a great example of why I need your services. But <laughs> I, I don't know what my personal brand is. I've always told people that probably what you do, which is that from the time when you're a kid, you know, you're really building your brand and you are a brand and you're building it one step at a time, one experience at a time. And it's not happenstance. It's a story that you can tell much better after the fact than beforehand. And uh, most likely, whatever story you came up with when you're 18 or 19 or 20 years old is not really the story you're going to live. But the story you can tell when you're 35 or 40 or 50 is pretty good. You know, no matter what your story is, it's amazing. And I can guarantee you that everybody has a story. And of course, I have a story. And my story is probably something like I grew up a basketball player and became a leader because of that. And then my leadership was probably better than my basketball. At least I thought it was. And so I took that into the business world and I fell in love with design along the way and decided that's the key tool I want to use to try to change things and make things better. And so that's the path that I've taken. And uh, I believe that I'm just at the very early days of really exploiting that. I think it's a leadership through design is probably the most powerful tool I know of in the business world. And it doesn't seem like it's used nearly as much as it should be. Oh, I love that you're mentioning that. You might just get me right into a subject that I will never leave. And I'm part of a, a board of KiCad, which is a Kentucky design school. And they're just starting. They're trying to get certified. But I believe, being a designer myself, that there is a huge opportunity for businesses. And obviously, Logitech is you've done that with Logitech is and a huge opportunity to combine business with design. And when it's done right and when it's done correctly, there's nobody that can, can take that away. And I think a lot of businesses don't understand the value of design and how design can actually add value to strategy, to business, to numbers, to anything that has to do with growth and business growth. Well, I know design is a very dynamic discipline. I mean, it's not a and discipline's too strong a word for it. I mean, in a way, we're all designers. You know, when you're when you're growing yeah. up, you're you're constantly designing and redesigning the things around you in some way, shape, or form. And then when you go to school and you start in kindergarten or wherever, whatever 
age you start, you uh, you start being taught to paint with you start being given constraints, you know, and yeah. probably you have too many constraints. And uh, you know, constraining things is a critical part of of great design. But if you over constrain, you can actually kill off, choke off design, creativity and design. And I think we sort of do that in school. And I'm not critical of the system. It's just a, a, probably the way it works. If you really want to get back to the designer in you when you get out of school, or even while you're in school, you need to, to fight those uh, binders that are put on you and start to let yourself think creatively about things that, that maybe you were even discouraged from thinking before. That is such an exciting thing for most people once they discover it, whether they discover when they're 22 or, you know, or, or discover when they're 62, you know, that you realize you can actually apply design or design thinking to anything, not just the things you mentioned, but of course your whole life. You know, you can really design a life, redesign a life. That's beautiful. And let me ask you this. So I always ask my listeners, what's your fame story? Because we believe that anybody can be famous for what they do. So we want to hear your particular fame story and how you noticed at some point in your life that you started to become famous for what you do. Yeah, you know, I've never sort of sought, like a lot of people who probably come on your podcast, I've never sought fame. I always sought impact. Mm. That's the best way to end up with some kind of fame, whatever you call that, because mostly we're driven by the reality that, you know, things that change the world for better or for worse, by the way, end up making the person who, who's, who's associated with that well-known. And and the other reality is that when you're a CEO of a public company, you get famous by inference, you know, whether you had anything to do with it. You know, 99.9% of the things we do, I don't, I didn't do, but I get associated with all of them, good or bad, and most of them are good so far. So I think if you ask me what is my What's my fame story? There probably is a fame story you can Google on the internet. What's my deserved story is probably a different story. And I think that's my deserved story. It's probably more about giving people room and encouragement and occasional editing, you know, and once in a while an idea, you know, and I think that's not a very glamorous story compared to a turnaround that grew the company 8X and was into a design company. But, and so I don't really care which story it is. I just really care more about the impact. I love that. So you had mentioned right before we started recording that you took the 15 minutes of fame that Andy Warhol had said. I mean, just got out of my head. So tell me a little bit about that. You know, I'd like to hear a little bit more. I know we didn't go into the conversation fully. Well, I, I, I was just mentioning, you know, once in a while when I'm desperately bored, I, I write something or I create an idea. Sometimes I never put it on paper. I just develop the idea. And I have several of those, you know, that are kind of half developed on uh, crinkled sheets of paper, you know, somewhere or, or virtually. And one of them is about a person who ends up experiencing fame through through the digital world. And it's about that. And uh, I don't know where I landed on that idea. It's not something I was particularly seeking. I just landed on it. And um, it's sort of a fun idea. So if, if I get if, I, if somebody talks me into it, I'm going to turn it into something. But it's yes, about, I will talk you into it. Well, I'm, I'm open to that. And but it's about that. It's a very fun idea. It's very funny, and also I think kind of meaningful. And I don't. I think the fame in this story is it's not about the fame. It's about about being true to yourself. You know. So as usual, you know, fame right. usually doesn't. As I said earlier, you know, I don't think the fame that people literally get usually is who they really are. 
So fame, you can end up losing yourself. And if you do get famous, I think a lot of celebrities who really do have that kind of fame we all think of, I think they have a hard time finding themselves sometimes. And and I think that's what this story is about. Yeah, I love that. We talk about Socrates used to would say that fame is an honorable thing. And, and we do believe that fame is. I think it's gotten a bad rap because of people not being ready to be famous, right? They don't know, know themselves enough to take on that responsibility and that job that is fame. So we try to turn it around into something more positive. But I love that. I love that that's bubbling up because they always say that when you think of something, somebody else also thinks of something. So you're not like the first to innovate, but whoever puts it on paper or says it first or comes out is like the person who actually gets credit for it. So I love that you were thinking about Andy Warhol at the same time as we were thinking about Andy Warhol in the same context. So we'll talk more about that when the book comes out. But I did want to ask you, now that we talked about all these wonderful things, what is your greatest fear? Well, I sort of have this view of the world that you're either growing or you're dying. It's true of companies, it's true of organizations, it's true of careers, it's true of us as, as, as living things, you know? And so it's not that I'm afraid of dying, I'm afraid of not growing. You know, I think I'm not afraid of it. I just love growth. I love every kind of growth, personal growth, business growth, growth of ideas, growth of people. I love human potential. So I'm not really afraid of, of anything. I'm more driven by the desire to grow. And so I guess that's, in a way, the photo negative of not particularly finding death appealing, you know, which is probably no surprise and no different from anybody else in this call. But I'm not obsessed by fearing anything. I'm much enamored with the idea of growth and that growth never has to stop until you do. You know, you stop growth. The only thing that can stop your growth is you, nothing else. There's no such thing as retirement if you don't believe in it. There's no such thing as as uh, slowing down if you don't want to. It's all in your head. It's just a mindset. So I really, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm more uh, excited about growth. I love that. So tell me, was there a time that you realized that something was holding you back, that you felt like you weren't growing at some point in your life and that you realized that? Maybe it's a little far-fetched, but just curious to know there was a point in your life where you felt like something was holding you back from what you wanted to do. I don't know. Probably there was, but I somewhere in my early 20s or my mid-20s or something, one of my early jobs, I remember thinking, I remember coming to the conclusion that actually if you were anybody could run a company out of any chair. I don't care if you're the the you're the receptionist at the front desk or the CEO, you could really run the company out of one chair. And that that requires an explanation because it sounds so extreme. But I really believe that. And I think, and the reason I believe it is because I think everybody's smart. By the time you get to about 33, the, the distribution curve of intelligence tightens up so much that honestly, everybody runs into smart. And if it feels like that to you and you're, you're 40 years old, that's probably why, because it literally happens. So you've got the, you've got the intellect. And then if you want to have high emotional smarts, emotional quotient, whatever the EQ, you can develop that too, just by listening hard and continually working on it. So you can have an IQ that's good enough and an EQ that's good enough to do anything. So it goes back to what do you want to do? And if you want to, if you believe that the company or the organization you're working in should change direction, then you can do it. You just have to decide you really believe in it and have enough conviction. And then you start working it. 
And uh, I say that you could really run a company out of every chair because you can, once you have an insight and something you believe in, you can make it happen. And this isn't just like a spiritual, you know, if you pray about it, you're going to think it happened. It's not that I'm not spiritual. It's a practical thing. You really can. And so I see it happen all the time. And I have people now reach out to me inside our company and say, I've got an idea. And I always think the same thing. You know, if you've got the idea and you listen hard and your insight's good, you can make it happen. Everybody can make it happen. So I just love that idea. And I've kind of I've kind of fallen in love with that idea too. And I and I really encourage it. And in fact, when new people join our company, I meet with everybody. You know, I try to meet with everybody who's new joins the company in small groups. And at the end of it, I would say, yeah, you've got one thing I lost, which is you've got this monster advantage, which is you don't know anything about our company yet. So while you still have that, I hope you'll take advantage of it and write me a letter and just tell me one or two or 20 things you've changed about the company because I've lost it. I can probably never get it back, but you got it. And I can live it through your your eyes again. And I really believe that that idea that you really can have an impact no matter where you sit is so critical to understand because it's true. I love that, that you, ha- I, I read that you had 7,000 employees, so over 7,000 employees. So if you know almost every single person, that's, that's a, a lot of people right there. Yeah, I don't know if I know every single person, but I, I have these small group meetings. I try to meet with everybody and and I love that. I mean, it's one of the best things about our company is all the, the new people come in and all the, and all the people who have been there a very long time. You know, it's amazing how, contrary to what I just said, I've got some of my most uh, challenging newcomers in a way are the people who've been there the longest. You know, they they have a view of the current that is reflected off the past, but they're always looking for something new. Rory Dooley, the guy who works for me, is just incredibly good at coming into every meeting like he just started. <laughs> I love that. So, you know, we were talking about at the beginning how for you was important to help people kind of grow and have an impact. And so tell me about your mentors, because I, I believe that everybody has mentors and mentors help you grow and help you get to the next level. Tell me um, somebody or that you felt was a mentor to you and really helped you through some difficulty. Well, first, let me, let me establish a, a ground rule. I don't think the best mentors in your life are people who chose to be your mentor. You chose them to be your mentor. They might not even know they're your mentor. You just adopted them. You may never have expressed it in those terms or in any terms. You just decided, you know what, I I have something to learn from them. And then you took away those pearls of wisdom or or wisdom or insights that, that helped improve you. And I think that's the most important thing in this conversation. Stop looking, stop waiting for a mentor to come to you. Just stop deciding. You know, Nelson Mandela is my mentor. He certainly doesn't know it, never did, didn't know me at all, but he certainly mentored me. And so did uh, Martin Luther King and uh, Susan Arnold, who I know very well and worked for, and Jim Hackett, who ran Anadarko, and I met very early in my my college career. All those people were mentors to me because they changed the way I thought about myself or about leadership in general. And I think that's the key to mentorship. It's Put, people put too much emphasis on the mentor and the and what they're saying. They should put more emphasis on the individual who's being mentored and how they got that information, who they chose to be mentored by. I love what you said about Nelson Mandela because he mentioned, he said, just right before you go to bed, just imagine yourself, you're in a boardroom and bring in your mentors. You know, is it Amelia Earhart or is it George Washington? 
and have a conversation with them. And you'll see that you'll get answers to your questions. And I I was like, well, I want to try this. This sounds really out there. But it was really fascinating to see how that dynamic kind of played out in this imaginary scenario. I love that. I think that's a really clever idea. I mean, if your imagination can run like that, I think that's a very clever thing to do. That I mean, you don't have to have a boardroom full of them. You just do a one-on-one with uh, with somebody over anything, you know. And I think you know, when I was early in my career, I, I almost only read biographies of great of what I thought were great people, and I was obsessed with it, you know. And I would just read one after another. I still love biographies of people, you know. And I think now I've kind of come to the conclusion that most people are great. They just don't necessarily get credit for it. So I think if you did that and you picked out those people, you said, there's something about you know Abraham Lincoln that I really respect. He had so much courage, you know. Then I imagine if you took a thing you're afraid of into that conversation with, with Honest Dave, you, know, you would come away with a pretty strong conviction around whatever it is you decided the next morning. Oh, that's a really good idea. I think I'm going to try that one. I like the fact that you said maybe just one person, like they don't have to be that. I was trying like, okay, who's at my right? Who's at my left? Who's at yeah. the end? What are they wearing? You know, it's just a lot of egos in that room too. I'm not sure that's going to work. So tell me a story or something where you felt like something was going to be almost impossible to accomplish, but you were able to accomplish it. You know, I'm not wired that way. You know, I'm uh, I'm, a, I'm really not. I, I, I'm probably the opposite. I think almost anything's possible. So I can't remember ever doing anything where I thought it was really going to be impossible to accomplish. I think I certainly went into things that seemed challenging, but they didn't seem challenging for very long. You know, as long as, you know, one thing I will say, if I could come up with a better one than I will, I would say you're standing at the, at the bottom of the step, but you haven't even stepped on the staircase yet. And you're looking way, way, way up there. And you can see the top of the stairs. And there's something really amazing up there. And then you look at the stairs and you're like, man, that is a long way. <laughs> and you're like, man, oh, man, that's a long way. I think that's kind of at the heart of your question. I think the way I've always thought about it is I never stopped thinking how cool that was up there. But I try not to focus too much on that, actually. I just... I would then look back at my feet and try to think, okay, what's the first step I'm going to make, you know, and really focus on one step at a time. And if you can get yourself to do that and then keep glancing up once in a while, because you need the inspiration for where you're going, usually anything is possible. You may change it. You may reconfigure whatever that is up there one day, or maybe you'll get halfway up there and realize it wasn't worth climbing to. There's another stairway that opens right off of that one. But I think almost anything is possible if you really want it. I love the metaphor of the stairs. And you're right, you have to take one step at a time. Sometimes we could jump a couple of steps if wanted or if needed. But I do feel like if you try to just take the first step, that's again, the first step to possibilities. Yeah. So, so tell me, lessons learned. What are your lessons learned, like two or three lessons learned over your lifetime? Well, I'll give a few that maybe you haven't heard before. I don't like trade-offs. So I've spent my whole life feeling a little guilty that I didn't prioritize better or or decide one thing is more important than another thing. But I think in a way that led me to a different path, which was I I read, uh, I've gotten to know uh, Roger Martin. I don't know if you know who he is, but he's, you know, Roger's a design thinker. And he wrote this book with A.G. Lafley, you know, the former CEO of P&G. And I actually have not read the book. Don't tell Roger that. I'm sure he won't be listening to me. He might be listening to you. But it, it was about... Um, 
the challenge of unresolved paradoxes and that, you know, actually some of the magic comes when you have a paradox and you resolve it. You say, well, it's a paradox, so it's not resolvable. But they are resolvable. You just have to think differently. You come at it some new way that nobody's ever thought about before. Or you decide it's not a problem at all to live these things, let them live independently. You just build a bridge across them. You do something that's new. So I've sort of lived my whole life that way. I, I don't like when people tell me, you know, you got to do this or that, or you got to limit this, or you try not to do so many things or whatever. So one of the conclusions I've come to is that the magic really happens when you live in these unresolved paradoxes. And I think Roger's right. And when you're looking for great insights, don't look at, you know, the obvious equation that everybody knows, you know, create a new one and maybe bring a color into the equation or a, a smell, you know, do it completely differently because that's where the magic comes from. And so then I'll bridge that to curiosity. You know, I think part of the power of a, of ever of a human being and, and actually all animals, you know, I watched my daughter's dog the other day, is curiosity, you know, but too often we stop, we define curiosity as this wonder, you know, I wonder what that is outside my window, you know, that, that plant and wonder why it's there and not something else. And, and we stop there. The only valuable curiosity is wonder plus action is for me then to go find out and take a picture of it and go into Google and look it up and understand where that species comes from and why it's there and, and then determine, you know, okay, it had to be planted here because they don't grow wild here. So why would they choose that over this one? When you do that, you suddenly learned a new field. And that, when taken to something completely different, into a completely different field, a new equation, an unresolved paradox, it will create something nobody else has ever done before. And so curiosity is its own reward, but it's also uh, it's also a key. It can open up a lock that you didn't even know, couldn't have imagined it would fit. I think that's one of the most important things for people to realize, especially as they get older, is that curiosity isn't wonder. It's wonder plus action. And you never want to stop being curious. I love that. Because what happens a lot of times is that we have ideas and then we don't do anything with them. We don't take them into execution. And I think it's like the left brain and the right brain. When you can meld those together, amazing things happen. Same thing with curiosity and execution. How, you know, when you meld those two things together, it's just the impossible happens. Yeah, it's so true. You know, we all have things that, that sell in, a, in our mental shelf. I do too. I have them right now. You do too. You know, and I think, you know, the, uh, and, you know, if you try to do everything contrary to my prior comment, you get nothing done. So you you end up at some point in your in points in your, in your life or in your day, you know, you pick off the ones you really want to make happen. And it's so satisfying to turn an idea into a result. I know an artist um, uh, who, who literally creates something every day. That's his philosophy. He wakes up in the morning every day. He creates something. And I think that's a really good idea. It's a good way to think about your life. You know, if you, every day you get up and you get something done. That's why that make your bed book, you know, the, the general. Yeah. I think that idea of our Admiral is, is that idea of always turn something into action every day. That's a good idea. Okay. So what's next for Breck and Daryl for Logitech in the next five to 10 years? Anything exciting that's happening in the next few years? Well, we've, we've completely transformed in a decade. We're totally, you know, we are really different and we're in so many new categories and the culture feels different and so many great things have remained, but we're very different. And the world around us has moved fast and it's moving faster all the time. So we have to move faster. So we will be very, very, very different five years from now. And without being too specific, I can assure you that we will not look much like the company we do today in five years or certainly in 10. 
And that's great. And I'm not, a, you know, everybody talks about trying to preserve their culture. And I think that's the yeah. wrong thing about culture. Culture shouldn't be preserved. It should be grown just like everything else. You should seek growth in culture. And in fact, I'll finish on a little bit on, on that. I think maybe the world's gone too far in valuing culture. The pendulum has swung and hit the wall on the other side and kind of broken it over. And and we've gotten to the point where every, uh, cultures need to be very, very narrowly defined and we need to make sure that people fit in their culture. And I think actually we've, we've lost something, which is individuality and the power of, of the individual, power of the passion of the individual. You know, the cultures need to have a light touch so that the individual can be the driver and personal drive and passion. You know, we need to have cultures that unlock passion, not cultures that that force you into a lane so that you play narrowly in that. I think you know, if you ask me what will Logitech be in five years, if I've been effective at all, it'll be a place where you come in and you really feel like you can be yourself and you have an overlap in this Venn diagram of what the company's purpose is all about, which is, I think, quite inspiring and, and, and a lot of room for people in it. And we'll be a hell of a lot bigger than we are because that's an appealing thing to do. Most people who get in there and want to do that will, will grow and the company will grow. Well, I so appreciate your honesty because I've uncovered your archetype through your conversation, which I never expected to actually uncover people's archetype. That's kind of my little secret of how I look at psychology and all those things. I love Carl Young and everything he's done. And he's looked at the archetypes and I can see that your passion and Before I go any more into that, I do want to say something about culture that was really insightful when you were speaking is I think culture, like you said, is something to understand, right? We understand the culture, but then we need to break it, right? We need to break it and move it forward. And I think a lot of times you try to preserve that culture and then we don't do anything new or innovative because we're stuck in kind of that land. And I could even see it, you know, I worked a lot on the PNG culture and how we wanted to kind of move that forward. And I remember working in that space was really interesting because as you know, ex-PNG or ex-PNG are here, that is a very ingrained culture, right? The great thing about culture is that you can understand somebody really quickly, very fast. You can get into the business, out of the business. They trust you. There's a lot of trust. There's a lot of great things. But the bad thing about culture is then if you do anything different, then they look at you like you have six heads or, you know, doing the right thing. Or remember, we have to stay within this lane. And so those are the the two things. So I think really understanding culture and then breaking it is something that should be honored and taken with a lot of respect. And I think a lot of companies, first of all, they have a hard time building culture, but then when they build it, they don't know how to break it. I think it's like a chicken and an egg kind of thing where you're kind of trying to maneuver around this thing that we call culture, especially when it comes from a company standpoint. So I love what you said about letting people be who they are, because a lot of times in culture, you try to become the culture of the company and then you're not yourself anymore. Right. And so who are you? You get lost in it. Right. Yeah, I, I don't know if you've uh, if you've heard of uh, Dr. Francesca Gino at Harvard Business School, but she's written a book called uh, Rebel Leadership or an article. And, and this is her her fundamental idea is that, you know, you need to find the rebel in yourself and and rebel against things to innovate. I remember when I was at P&G, 
actually, ironically, I admire two kinds of people, the ones who are just really amazingly effective, and then the ones who were amazingly rebellious. And they, they didn't walk around and burn the building down, but they refused to accept things the way they were. Not always were they very effective, you know, but they were super rebellious. And, and I think the best people in PNG, whether they did this inside of PNG or later after they left, kind of blended those two. And they broke the rules sometimes and they followed the rules a lot. And I think that's a good way to think about culture. You know, culture is very, as you said, it comes in handy. You know, it's a, it gives you language, gives you uh, trust and things, but the need to break things that seem like they're inconsistent with the way things have happened before, which is often attributed to culture, is so incredibly important to innovation and, and to development and growth. So, yeah, I would encourage anybody to find out more about Francesca Gino. She's super interesting. Okay, I, I'm going to, but that's on my list now of books okay. to read. Okay. Thank you so much, Brecken, for this wonderful time with you. I so appreciate everything, um, Your first your time. I know you're a very busy man, but I love having these conversations where we can just be open and honest and having these understandings of who are you as a person? Who are you as an individual? And what are the things that you think are important? And can other people learn from you as well? Because there's a lot of, you know, CEOs or even people in other roles that want to become their own kind of person in, in their own company. And so how do you do that? And how do you get to where you've gotten with all your experience? So I really so appreciate your time and investment in the Brand Therapy Podcast. Well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. Thank you so much. And we'll get back together once the either your book or my book is written so we can talk a little bit more about the 50 minutes of fame. Thank you so much. And I'll see you on the next one. Thank you for listening to The Brand Therapist. If you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe, rate, and review this podcast on your favorite pod player. If you'd like to connect with me on social, you can find me at Yamoka Rodriguez Branding, Bespoke Branding Agency, or email me at yamoka at yamoka.com. Thanks for listening.